You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of creation messages that John Whitcomb Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Now, here is John Whitcomb Jr. on Today in the Word radio. We invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the first chapter of Genesis. As we think together of some of the greatest themes that can possibly confront the human mind and heart. The origin of this world in which we live and the wonders of the God who made it. As we confront the first chapter of Genesis, we find some of the deepest and greatest mysteries that we can possibly imagine. Because you see, this chapter tells us of things that we today are completely incapable of analyzing on the basis of what we know as the scientific method. Science builds its theories upon the present processes of this world. And the present processes of this world are completely different than the processes that God employed to create the world in the beginning. And thus we understand from Hebrews 11.3 that it is only by faith that we can understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which appear, the things that are visible in this amazing world were not made of things which can be seen. They came from the infinite recesses of God himself. The first chapter of Genesis very strongly implies that the first object in this created universe was the earth itself. And not until the fourth day of creation did did God create the sun, the moon, and the stars. In other words, a solar system into which the earth was placed. We suggested some reasons for this spiritually. Namely, that by this means God shows us that the earth and life does not depend upon the sun but comes from God, who was perfectly capable of creating an earth without first making a sun to give it birth. But there are some interesting scientific aspects to this problem, too, because we as Christians, living in an age of science, are influenced far more deeply than perhaps we realize sometimes by the current popular scientific theories of our day. And of course, the theory that dominates and permeates the atmosphere of our 20th century with regard to this question of where things came from and where things are going is the theory of evolution. Now, in all of our great universities today in the Western world, young people are being taught, even as I was taught, that this earth, after all, was flung forth from a great cosmic cloud of gas and dust billions and billions of years ago and that through natural processes wholly apart from any God or any miracles this earth somehow evolved itself into its present state and that the sun was the originator of our earth. But when we look at this theory of evolution rather closely we discover that actually science does not have any answers 
as to where this earth came from or the sun, moon, and stars. Let me consider with you just for a few minutes some of the deep, serious, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, hopeless problems that confront the evolutionist when he tries to explain, in contradiction to the book of Genesis, where this solar system, where this earth came from. Until 1940, scientists believed that somehow the earth and the planets were flung off from a spinning sun and that these chunks of metal and rock called the planets cooled down and settled into their orbits as we see them today. But because of many, many problems with this theory scientifically, it was almost completely abandoned. And scientists in desperation returned to an older idea that was uh, popular a hundred years ago or more called the nebular hypothesis, which teaches that the sun did not fling off the planets, but rather the sun and the planets once were a great whirling mass of gas and dust, and that the sun in the center, in the hub of this whirling mass, condensed into the present star that we see, and the planets, which were outer uh, fringes of this whirling mass, condensed and uh, have continued in their present orbits from that time to the present. Many, many people have been impressed with this theory called the nebular hypothesis. But there are several things that we need to consider for a few moments that completely undermine the validity of this idea. In the first place, it has been pointed out that before any gas or dust could have condensed, this nebula, this great vast cloud, would have dispersed completely into outer space. And one of America's leading astronomers, Dr. Gerald P. Kuiper, admits that before any gravitational attraction could bring these particles together to form planets, they would have to be as big as the moon to start with. And of course, this implies that you would have to have a solar system to begin with in order to have a solar system. Secondly, this theory demands a very complex system of roller-bearing eddies or whirling masses of dust moving exactly at the same velocity in the same place for millions of years. But uh, once again, Dr. Kuiper admits that it is very difficult to conceive how such a thing could have continued even for 10 or 100 years to say nothing of the millions that would be demanded by evolutionists. In the third place, if this condensation actually could have happened, what would have kept all the planets from merging into one great mass, namely the sun? The sun, after all, makes up nearly 100% of the mass of the solar system. So what would have kept the remaining one-seventh of 1%, namely our planets, from falling into the sun? In the fourth place, Astronomers have failed to find any examples in our vast universe or galaxy of suns condensing out of clouds of gas and dust and forming planets, and therefore it is very difficult to see why or how this could have happened in our own little system of planets. In the fifth place, 
The planets contain less than 1% of the mass of the solar system, but a staggering 98% of its angular momentum. Now, angular momentum is that force that keeps the planets moving at tremendous speeds and at great distances from the sun around in their orbits. As one scientist expresses it, a theory of evolution that fails to account for this peculiar fact is ruled out before it starts. In the sixth place, evolutionists cannot explain why seven of the planets out of the nine have direct rotation in reference to their revolution around the sun. That is, they spin in the same direction as their movement in orbit around the sun. But the planet Venus rotates backwards and the planet Uranus rotates vertically at a 98-degree angle in spite of the fact that its orbit inclines less than any other planet. One astronomer at Harvard University studying this problem has said, and I quote, it is an open question whether this state of affairs is consistent with current theories of the origin of the solar system. In the seventh place, evolution has no answer to the problem of retrograde satellites. Now, you know, the, the Earth has one satellite called the moon. Well, it's interesting that in our solar system, with its nine planets, there are 31 moons, but 11 of them move backwards around their mother planets in reference to the movement of those planets around the sun. This problem has proven to be so staggering that astronomers who believe in the theory of evolution have called upon near miracles, or as they call them, cosmic accidents, to explain how these things could have happened. In the eighth place, evolutionists cannot explain the angular momentum in the satellite systems. That is, the planets are whirling so fast compared to the slow movement of their moons around them, which is a complete reversal of the situation in the whole solar system where the sun rotates slowly and the planets move rapidly. This has been a great problem for evolution. In the ninth place, evolutionists have failed to explain how it is that the Earth and some of the smaller planets are made of such heavy materials, whereas the sun is composed of completely different types of materials. If the sun and planets all came from one great gas dust cloud, how do we explain this? Professor Fred Hoyle, a famous astronomer at Cambridge University, puts it this way, and I quote, apart from hydrogen and helium, all other elements are extremely rare all over the universe. In other words, most of the stars are made of just two elements, hydrogen and helium. In fact, the hydrogen breaks down into helium. In the sun, they amount to only about 1% of the total mass, that is, all other elements. But when we look at the Earth and the small planets, just the opposite is true. We see that material torn from the sun would not be at all suitable for the formation of planets as we know them. Its composition would be hopelessly wrong and then this concluding statement to me is very significant. 
Our second point in this contrast is that it is the sun that is normal and the earth that is a freak. The interstellar gas and most of the stars are composed of material like the sun, not like the earth. You must understand that cosmically speaking, the room that you are now sitting in is made of the wrong stuff. You yourself are a rarity. You are a cosmic collector's piece. In other words, the elements, the materials, the substances, the metals, the rocks in this planet Earth are almost miraculous in their uniqueness as far as what this universe is made of. Now, it's problems like this and others that I could mention, such as the question of where the moon came from, that makes it perfectly possible for a Christian man of science to challenge the theory of evolution on the basic question of where we all came from. And I personally believe that the lesson we can learn from it is this. The most logical answer ever devised for the question of where the sun, moon, and planets came from is that God created them. God created this solar system in which we live. It didn't evolve. He spoke and it appeared. And I confess that this is overwhelming to the human mind to think that there's a God in heaven great enough to do this kind of work, to speak a word and have a great whirling mass of fire set into space. It took a miracle to place the stars in space. It took a miracle to hang this world in space. As Job says, the earth hangs upon nothing. Only God can do this. And I would like to submit to you this morning for your careful consideration that there is not one single valid scientific argument available that can contradict the clear-cut statements of the book of Genesis concerning the creation of this world. Why is it that God tells us in Scripture, therefore, that Earth came first and solar system later? I believe in order to emphasize the fact that this earth, in spite of its comparative smallness and insignificance of size, is the most important physical body among all the planets and moons and stars in this vast universe. You know, when I went to college a few years back as a young uh, man without any convictions whatever concerning the word of God, I wasn't a Christian. I was told by great authority in my science classes at the university that astronomers have now come to realize that our planet Earth amounts to practically nothing. We're a mere second-rate planet in a fifth-rate solar system revolving in total darkness in an empty void around a burning ball of fire and we don't really know where we've come from or where we're going. And we are simply a grain of sand in a vast universe, the outer limits of which have never been understood and perhaps never will be. And that if there is a God, he 
couldn't possibly be less interested in whether you and I are happy or sad, or good or bad, or whether we live or die. Now, this is a brilliant discovery, isn't it? This is the final achievement of modern science in the realm of astronomy, namely, that we amount to nothing. Life isn't worth living. The earth is meaningless. But I'm so happy that God, by revelation, has told us a very different story. And it's this, that in spite of appearances, and the appearances are somewhat discouraging, in spite of appearances, this earth is vastly important. Do you know why? Because to this little planet Earth, which is number three in a series of nine from the sun, the sun being only one of a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of galaxies, to this little planet Earth, God himself came to pay a visit 1,900 years ago. And not just to visit, but to become a permanent member of this human race that lives on this planet. And not only that, but he's coming back to visit this planet again. And he's going to build a kingdom on this planet. And it's going to last for a thousand years. And God has revealed in Scripture that in spite of appearances, this planet is of infinite importance. This is where God is doing his work. And as far as I'm personally concerned, and this is a very controversial subject today, as far as I'm personally concerned, the Bible implies by statements of this type that there isn't any conscious life on any other planet in any other solar system anywhere in the universe. You say, well, that's hard to believe. Why did God go to all the work of making hundreds of billions of stars and perhaps planets and then only put people on one of them? Well, I would like to remind you, dear friends, that when you come to Genesis, you have to revise your ideas about the methods God used to make things. And the lesson that I've learned, I believe, from this chapter is that God didn't have to go to any work to make things. He just spoke and things happened. And I really believe that God was not tired when he created the universe. He just spoke a word and there it was. David put it that way, didn't he? When I consider thy heavens the work of thy what? fingers. That's all. Just a snap of the fingers, and there they are. And the sun and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. David, however, staggered though he was at the magnitude of the universe and the comparative nothingness of himself. What is man in the presence of this vast world and this amazing sky? God gave him an answer. God said, don't be discouraged, David. You're a good astronomer, but you don't know everything. And I'm going to tell you something, that you are important to me. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, the answer comes from God, and it's this. 
Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast set all things under his feet. Everything in this world, on the continents, and that move in the waters of the sea, God has placed under the feet of man. Why? Because man is the only creature in the universe who has God's image stamped upon him. Man is the king of this world. And as far as I'm concerned, this universe was created for man to look at in order that he might learn some things from it about the character and power of his God. There are a number of Bible verses that suggest this. But first of all, just look at Genesis 1.14 and ask yourself the question as you read this verse and the two that follow it. Why did God create this vast universe? God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from night and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to do what? To give light upon the earth. Everything is centered on this earth. They are to do three basic things. They are, they are to shed light upon the earth so that men can see their way, thus replacing the temporary, unique, special light source of Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Secondly, they are to serve as a calendar for man, you see, for seasons, days, and years, so that he will be able to plan his schedule ahead and as a reflection of God's purpose for the future, man, in God's image, is to have purpose for his own future, to plan. And thus, they serve as a calendar, marking lines for his activities. And thirdly, and most significant, they are for signs. What does this mean? This means that they are intended by God to teach men lessons lessons about God. And so we read in Romans chapter 1 that men are absolutely without excuse in their relationship to God because the things of God are clearly seen in the things that he has made, even his eternal power and Godhead. The sun, moon, and stars teach some things about God's nature and power, character, and his infinite attributes. They are for signs. And I believe that that is a sufficient reason for the existence of this vast universe of stars and galaxies in order that men might benefit from them. This is a thrilling thing because, you know, it puts the whole perspective in a different slant for the Christian. It makes him recognize that, as Paul said to the Corinthian uh, Christians, all things are yours. All things are yours. You're not just a speck pushed about by chance and the blind forces of nature. You're an object of God's personal special love. And if we've missed this theme from the first chapter of Genesis, I believe we've missed a lot because this is one of the things that God wants to tell us in this chapter. When we come to the question of the creation of life, of course, we're coming a little bit closer to home than we are when we talk about the moon and the planets and the sun and the stars. But even here, God has guaranteed 
to the Christian an insight that is automatically beyond the reach of the unbelieving world. And it's this, that living things on this planet Earth, plants and animals and people, contain within them the clear testimony of their own supernatural, miraculous origin. God has placed the stamp of miracle upon the world of living things. Now, of course, we recognize that the theory of evolution first gained its prominence a hundred years ago in attempting to solve the problem of where living things came from. And so we are told today, not only in graduate schools of science, but even now in our public high schools and even elementary schools and through every public medium of communication, that life on this earth began two or three billion years ago when some chemicals floating about in the ancient oceans, acted upon by sunlight, somehow came together to form a single-celled speck of life. And that this tiny speck of life somehow not only succeeded in surviving, but also in reproducing itself into all types of different living creatures in the oceans, some of which, after a billion years or more, moved out upon the continents and developed legs and uh, developed the characteristics of, of uh, warm-blooded uh, mammals. And some of these, finally, through vast periods of time, became people. This is the theory of evolution which seeks to solve all the mysteries of the world and of origins by a consistent application of the scientific method without any appeal to God, whatever. I believe that he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And this can be analyzed from two standpoints. This theory is completely rejected by Scripture. And secondly, it is refuted by all the true facts of science. Let us consider what the Scripture has to say about this idea of the origin of life. If you look with me, please, at Genesis 1, verse 11, you will see God's account of how the first living things appeared on this earth. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. The Bible tells us that the first living things on this earth were not marine creatures floating in the oceans, but God created plant life on the continents. And among the plants that he made were fruit trees yielding fruit after their kind. Now this is a clear contradiction to evolution because evolutionists must begin their process of life development in the oceans. Do you know why? Because it is really quite difficult to imagine chemicals floating together on the dry land. And all this, you see, had to be by chance. 
someone has asked the question, what really are the possibilities, the chances, even if life did begin in the oceans, of such chemicals coming together like this? But when you stop to realize that a single-celled creature has billions of complex atoms within it, and all types of highly specialized systems, proteins and DNA molecules and amino acids and so forth, all of which have to fit together perfectly in order to enable this tiny creature to be able to absorb food and to, to live and to perpetuate itself and reproduce. Someone has estimated that the chances of such a thing happening would not simply be one over a billion but one over a number so gigantic that if you typed out the zeros on a typewriter, the sheets of paper would overflow the United States of America and produce a mountain so gigantic that it would pass the moon and fill the solar system. That's the chance. Those are the statistics from the standpoint of probability of such a thing happening especially because we know today that one of the basic laws of science is that life can only come from life. Louis Pasteur pointed out a hundred years ago, you see, that uh, spontaneous generation is false. You can't have life springing out of water unless it floats in from somewhere else. That's why we pasteurize things to keep living things from getting in. And this is one of the basic laws of science. But evolution must begin by magic. It's what it is. And it has to begin in the water, in the oceans. And by the way, the oceans couldn't have been the way they are today because present oceans are not chemically made up the way evolutionists insist they must have been. So we'd have to have different kinds of oceans, different kind of atmosphere made up of ammonia and methane and other things that aren't in existence today, known or ever could have been, in order somehow to get this spark to hit this chemical in the right way for it to spring into life. But Genesis, you see, completely undercuts this idea. God began life on this planet by speaking a word, and the earth produced fruit trees bearing fruit. Now, that gives me a different picture entirely of how life began. Evolutionists tell us, by the way, that fruit trees are a highly complex very advanced form of life in the vegetable kingdom which only could have appeared recently in earth history. But God says that the first things it lived included fruit trees. How do we know that this is true? Simply because God says so. I wasn't there, and I don't know of any physical evidences whether in the fossils or in the realm of botany, that can prove that fruit trees came before fishes. But evolutionists don't know either. By faith, they believe that the Bible is not true and that things that are happening now have always happened and that all things have continued as they were. By faith, I believe that Jesus Christ is true because he changed my life and I have found him to be faithful to his word. And I believe that when he told me in his word that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he won't deceive me, that he can't lie. 
Jesus said the book of Genesis is true. He said, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, how can you believe my writings? John chapter 5. And Moses said, fruit trees came first. And if Jesus is truth, and he said Moses is true, then fruit trees came before fishes, and that settles it. You see, it's a very simple thing for a Christian. By revelation, in a book, we have answers before we even start looking. And I'd like to say that unless you have the answers from God, you'll never find them anywhere else. This is an area that God has reserved for himself, namely, how did things begin? And God is qualified to speak on the subject. You know why? He was there. He was there. In the beginning, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And not until the fifth day of creation, over in verses 20 and 21, did God say, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. So point one in the biblical refutation of the theory of evolution is this. The order of events as outlined in Genesis is opposite that of evolution. And this is one way that God is saying to the Christian, do you think you can explain the origin of life Apart from me, you can't do it. Whatever you think may have been the way it was, I'm telling you now it wasn't that way. And the last thing you would ever dream, if you were trying to figure this out by natural theories, the last thing you would ever dream is that fruit trees popped out of the ground first, and then other things later. This idea of evolution has permeated our whole vocabulary, our whole outlook, our whole attitude in life, even as Christians. Why is it that we call the tiniest specks of life in the oceans protozoans? That means first life. May I suggest a revision? I'm going to call fruit trees protozoans. They're the first living things. And I think that as Christians, we need not only new ideas, but a new vocabulary to fit God's interpretation of the origin of this amazing world of living things of which we are a part. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages John Whitcomb Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.